Would you join me as we pray? O oh Lord, let the mouth, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to think with you for a few moments about an event that occurred approximately one week after the resurrection of Jesus. And I have no idea, perhaps you even talked about this event last Sunday. Perhaps your pastor shared some, uh, a message on this event. And if so, that's perfectly okay because I've discovered I often learn new truths when I hear a slightly different perspective on a familiar passage. But if you had been one of the original 12 apostles of Jesus, what would you have been doing approximately a week after the resurrection? Would you have been celebrating the resurrection? Would you have perhaps been packing your bags in anticipation of preaching the gospel to the world and making disciples in all the nations? The truth is you would have been doing none of those things. And how do I know that's the case? Because the Apostle John informs us of the situation of what was taking place about a week after Jesus rose from the tomb. But before we examine that particular passage by John, we need to review a few things that happened on Resurrection Day itself. And I'm going to be referring here to John chapter 20. If you want to look that up in your Bible, John chapter 20. And I'm going to begin with verse 19. John writes, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So it's evening, resurrection, Sunday. And during this day, Jesus has appeared to at least Mary Magdalene, some other ladies, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and to Peter. And you would think that after all these appearance, appearances of Jesus to various individuals, with all the evidence he provided to prove that he had emerged alive from the tomb, you might assume that they would be rejoicing and reminding themselves of the many times that Jesus had announced that he would rise from the grave and that they would be looking forward to future appearances of Jesus as their victorious Messiah, this long-anticipated Messiah. But the truth of the matter is, they were doing none of those things. The historical accounts say that the situation was the disciples were completely dispirited, demoralized, and defeated. They were convinced that all of their aspirations, their confidence in the messianic mission of Jesus had been demolished by his death. So they're holed up in Jerusalem, terrified that the Jewish authorities will be seeking to execute them next. 
Consequently, we find them hiding in a room with the doors shut and locked. And John says that suddenly Jesus appeared, standing in their midst without entering a door. Now, here he is. He appears to his disciples. Were they delighted and relieved to see Jesus? Not at all. Luke, in his account of this event, informs us they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. They thought that Jesus was an apparition, a ghost from the tomb. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was something like what we might call Casper the Friendly Ghost. I can say that to you because you're my generation. If I said that to kids at the college today, they wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about, but you folks will know. So what did Jesus do? Well, first of all, he allayed their fears by saying, peace be with you, very likely using the Hebrew greeting, shalom. And then he rebuked them by asking, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then Jesus graciously provided them with demonstrative evidence that it was he and that he had truly risen from the tomb bodily. Jesus presented the wounds that had been inflicted during the crucifixion. He was not some spirit, not some apparition, he was their beloved teacher. Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever wondered why Jesus made a point of presenting his wounds to his disciples? Think about it for just a moment. Many people had been crucified by the Romans. In fact, as you're well aware, two thieves had been crucified alongside Jesus the previous Friday. So nail prints in hands and feet would not have been particularly uncommon. Many people who had been crucified had those kind of wounds in their bodies. But what about the wound in the side of Jesus? Now, it's certainly possible that the Romans, when they crucified somebody other than Jesus, they may have thrust a spear into that person's side. But of all the people who had been crucified recently, though that wound in the side of Jesus was unique. Those wounds of Jesus demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was, in fact, their beloved teacher, the one in whom they had placed their aspirations and their dreams of the Messiah. The wounds also demonstrated that Jesus emerged from the tomb with the same body with which he had entered the tomb. Though, let's be honest, there's got to be some kind of changes because now he can enter a room without using a door. But Jesus didn't just stop with show and tell. He moved on to show and touch. Or to put it another way, he invited the disciples to touch him Listen to how Luke describes what Jesus said. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. 
touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, Jesus says to the disciples who were there, come on guys, check it out. You think I'm a ghost? Grab hold of me. You're not going to stick your hand through me. I'm not, I'm not some kind of a, a, a hallucination. I'm not some apparition. And then, according to Luke, to instill even greater confidence and understanding in his disciples, Jesus requested some food, you remember, and ate it in their presence. So what was Jesus doing for his disciples? He was presenting them with convincing and empirically verifiable evidence that he was alive and had risen physically from the dead. Jesus wanted his disciples to be absolutely convinced and confident that he had genuinely overcome death and had risen physically from the grave. And after all of this, John informs us, according to verse 20, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Took them long enough, don't you think? But now I want you to observe a prudent inquire. John is about to inform us of some information that was not apparent previously. We're about to learn that when Jesus appeared on Resurrection Sunday to his apostles, that only 10 of the original 12 were present. Now, you know why Judas Iscariot was not there, right? But we're about to learn that Thomas also was not present. So look at uh, verse 24 here in chapter 20. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, Thomas is the man's Hebrew name, Ta'om in Hebrew, Ta'om, which means twin in Hebrew. Didymos in Greek means twin. So he has the Hebrew name Thomas, the Greek name Didymus, referring to the fact that apparently he was a twin. And for some reason, which John apparently didn't feel necessary to explain, he had not been present previously when Jesus appeared to the other apostles. So look at verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Can you imagine how excited and elated the other apostles were to convey the information to Thomas that they had seen the risen Christ? And you have to know that they would have sought out Thomas as quickly as possible and announced to him, we have seen the Lord. And apparently their excitement was at such a high intensity that they didn't simply say, we have seen the Lord, Thomas. They repeatedly announced, we have seen the Lord. Over and over they said it. 
And the reason I suggest that that was the case is because John, in his record, uses a verb in the original language, a verb tense, that indicates continuing action. In other words, they repeatedly said, we have seen the Lord. I mean, these, these men were beside themselves with excitement. We've seen the Lord, Thomas. We have seen the Lord. And as you're very well aware, Thomas was having none of it. In fact, at first glance, it appears that Thomas's attitude was one of complete skepticism. It's as though his attitude was, I don't know what you guys have been smoking, but I'm not buying it. You know, Thomas may have thought, you know, okay, you guys, you've been overcome with grief. You're, you're anxious. You are beside yourselves with fear. Maybe you've had some sort of a hallucination, some sort of an experience, but I'm not going to accept your account as true. And then Thomas explained to them what he would accept as evidence. The only way that he would believe what they were reporting. He spelled it out for them. Thomas demands to see the body of Jesus for himself and to examine the physical body of Jesus, to examine his wounds. He wants to ascertain that those identifying wounds were there and that they were genuine. And Thomas asserts he was adamant without those physical, empirically verifiable evidence, those wounds, Thomas asserts, I will not believe. And in the original language, that is the strongest possible way to make a negative statement. I'm not believing. There is no way on earth. I will not believe unless I receive that proof. Now, a moment ago, I said that Thomas's attitude appears to be that of a complete skeptic. As a matter of fact, the behavior of Thomas on this occasion has earned him the nickname Doubting Thomas. We're all very well aware of that fact. But I want to suggest to you that Thomas was not really a skeptic. In fact, I submit to you that Thomas was a sincere, prudent inquirer who demanded evidence before he believed. And I'm grateful for Thomas and for the stand that he took on this occasion because the behavior of Thomas reveals to you and me that those original, original apostles were not naive, gullible simpletons who would believe just any fanciful tale that came down the pike. So I don't know about you, but I appreciate Thomas's insistence for proof before he would believe. And right here, we need to take a little bit of a detour and consider a crucial truth regarding biblical faith. You know, many times 
we hear the idea or encounter the idea that faith calls for a leap into the unknown, a leap into the dark. You know what I mean? The idea that faith requires us to believe something that may or may not be true and we really can't be certain whether or not it is true. Or that faith demands that we just believe with intensity and sincerity what we hope is true. Do you realize that biblical faith never requires us to believe something that is untrue or something for which there is insufficient evidence for believing and trusting? And I think one of the best illustrations of this truth is probably what Paul wrote concerning the resurrection of the dead as recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, you can relax. I'm not going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 15 to you, but I just want to share two verses. Apparently, there were some Christians there in Corinth who had concluded that believers, that there will not be a resurrection from the dead. Believers were not going to physically rise from the dead. Now, you may say, how on earth would they come to that kind of an idea? Well, it may be that some of them had bought into Greek philosophy, which taught that the body is a prison house of the soul, which can be shed at death, and therefore these believers may have come to think that uh, Christians would exist in a bodiless form for eternity. Or there may have been some there in the church at Corinth who had decided that, well, you know, when we are born again, we experience a spiritual resurrection, so there's no reason to expect a physical resurrection after death. And of course, there may have been other aberrant views there. But listen to what Paul argues in, re in response. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, If the dead are not raised, as some of you folks at Corinth seem to believe, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Notice what Paul says to that church, Christians in Corinth. If there is no resurrection of the dead, as some of you are asserting, then you realize that means Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is in vain. It's worthless. Think about what that means. If the resurrection of Christ is not a true historical fact, based upon historical reality, our faith is worthless. It doesn't matter how sincerely we believe. It doesn't matter how great the intensity of our faith might be. If our faith is not based upon truth and historical reality, you realize it's worthless, Paul affirms. It doesn't mean anything. In fact, he goes on to say, we're the most pitiful people on the face of the earth because we're putting our confidence in something that ought not have any confidence. It's not true. 
So you see, genuine biblical faith must be based upon historical facts and solid evidence. Biblical faith, and this is a very important point, biblical faith is not a matter of hoping hard enough or of mustering a sufficient amount of sincere belief or of persisting in believing in what is untrue. If we're putting our trust in something or someone that is untrue, something that is not true and trustworthy, that's not biblical faith. So Thomas' demand for proof of the resurrection of Jesus, I suggest to you, was entirely appropriate. So now, consider an astounding confession from a prudent inquirer. Look at verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Now, taking the eight days to be an inclusive way of counting, we're, we are a week from Resurrection Sunday. <clears throat> Nothing much has changed. The disciples are still frightened and fearful. They're in a room with the doors securely locked. Jesus suddenly appears in their midst, once again without coming through a door. Excuse me. And he greets them as he had previously. So verse 27. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Reach here your finger. See my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Did you notice Jesus was already aware of what Thomas had demanded for verifiable, verifiable proof? Even though Jesus had not been physically present previously when Thomas had uttered those words. But here's something I think is important. Did Jesus rebuke Thomas for demanding evidence before he would believe? No, he didn't. No record that he did, at least. In fact, he affirmed Thomas's desire for proof and invited him to satisfy his inquiry. But here's something I want to consider with you. What, what do you think Jesus intended the result of Thomas's inquiry to be? You know, once Thomas, Jesus says, come on, check, check it out, touch my wounds. What did Jesus intend the result of that investigation to be? Well, depending upon which version you're reading, it may come out a number of different ways. The New American Standard, from which I'm reading, says, Jesus told, tells Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. If you're reading from the King James Version, it says, be not faithless, but believing. Some of you probably are reading from the New International Version. Stop doubting and believe. A number of different ways that the original language is rendered here. Let me just share with you why it comes out so differently. John actually has two adjectives that he uses. 
joined by the strongest adversative in the Greek language. The construction is, don't be this, but, and the strongest adversative that you can use in the Greek language, but rather be this. Now, and I'm not trying to, I just want you to hear the word so you'll know what I'm talking about here. The Greek word, the Greek adjective for uh, faithful or trusting or believing is the word pistos, pistos. And what John has done is he took the word for believing or trusting and he put what is called an alpha privative on the front of it. We do that in English. You'd be familiar with it. You know, we have the word moral, and you put an alpha privative on the front of it, and you have amoral, which is the opposite, right? Moral, amoral, so you got the opposite. Well, John takes the word for believing or trusting, pistos, puts an alpha privative on the front of it, apistos, and it means the opposite unbelieving. So literally John says, don't be distrusting, but rather be trusting. That's what Jesus says to Thomas. Now look at verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. What about that confession uttered by Thomas? Let me dispense immediately with what I consider to be a pretty silly interpretation. You may have encountered this. There are some who suggest that what Thomas said was simply a startled response due to the appearance of Jesus. You know, it's as though Thomas had said, my Lord, my God. You know, a startled response. Now, aside from such a response being blasphemous and beyond the pale for a devout Jewish man like Thomas, there is a fatal flaw in that explanation. And that fatal flaw is the presence of a three-letter word, the word in English, and. Thomas didn't say, my God, my Lord. That's not what he said. He said, my Lord and my God. You know, that's a pretty magnificent confession, is it not? And what's really magnificent about it is the magnitude of it. Thomas doesn't merely confess... <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus has risen from the dead. As magnificent a confession as that would have been, Thomas actually addresses Jesus. Think about this. He addresses Jesus, the man standing before him in the flesh as his Lord and his God. Thomas has gone from disillusionment and despair and from distrusting the account of the resurrection of Jesus to now proclaiming that Jesus is God himself. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, 
Have you believed? Now, my version has a question. Some of you may have it uh, as a declarative sentence. In other words, Jesus may have said, because you have seen me, you have believed. And the reason it could go either way is because in the original manuscripts, there were no punctuation marks. So Jesus may have asked a question or he may have made a statement. Doesn't really matter. Let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus was rebuking Thomas for demanding to see evidence before he would believe? I don't think it was a rebuke at all. Some do. And, you know, even if it were a gentle rebuke, let me ask you this. Did a single one of the other apostles believe that Jesus had risen from the dead without first seeing Jesus in person? Any of them? You know, we give Thomas a hard time, call him Doubting Thomas, but did anybody else? In other words, Thomas was really no different from any of the other apostles. They all required confirmation through the physical appearance of Jesus before they would believe. Now look at that beatitude in verse 29. The beatitude expressed by Jesus. Do you realize that with those words, Jesus pronounced a blessing upon you and me? Because the day would soon arrive when Jesus would no longer physically appear to anyone like he did those original apostles. Those who believed in Jesus and in his death and resurrection would do so based upon the testimony of witnesses like Thomas and the other apostles. So this morning, you and I can place our faith in Jesus and trust in his completed work of redemption accomplished on our behalf because we have the truthful, reliable, historical evidence provided by the first witnesses like Thomas. Our faith is not based upon some myth or some legend. We don't put our faith in some hopeful ideology. Our faith is based upon the Holy Spirit-inspired testimony of witnesses like Thomas who believed because they saw and knew the truth. Let's pray together. Father, just reading the Gospel of John, this seems almost to be kind of just an insignificant event. You appear and satisfy Thomas' demand for evidence. But we thank you, Father, that you've included this in your word, that we might know that those early followers were very much like us in many ways. They needed, in fact, even demanded evidence and proof. Their faith needed to be based upon truth and reality, even as ours does today. So we thank you for providing this account. And Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you are not threatened by our questions 
and sometimes even our doubts, that you want us to know the truth and to have our faith based upon the solid rock of historical reality and your truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.